this is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. This morning, we are talking to John Horning, the executive director of Wild Earth Guardians. Wild Earth Guardians is a about a 30-year-old organization, uh, same age as the Taos Land Trust, started in 1989, uh, New Mexico-based conservation organization um, with a very successful history of enforcing our nation's bedrock environmental laws, such as the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and the Endangered Species Act. And that's what we're going to focus on today, um, our, our country's, uh, what I'm calling our bedrock foundational environmental uh, laws, Endangered Species Act, uh, National Environmental Policy Act, and so on. So, John, uh, the, the Wild Earth Guardians tends to work with these laws on a, on a number of levels, and so John and his staff are experts in these, these bedrock laws, and, and we want to take a look at them. So, John, I'm going to turn you on here, and why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, it's good to be here. Appreciate the invitation. It's always nice to spend a, a quiet morning in the car driving almost anywhere in the West. But uh, so I enjoyed the drive up from Santa Fe, where I've lived for the last 25 years. I've worked at Guardians for 25 years. It's been a labor of love. I grew up in the very wild urban landscape of Washington, D.C., but the Rocky Mountain West has always been a big part of my identity. My mom's family is from uh, kind of, I just learned actually that my grandfather was born in between uh, Trinidad and Walsenburg. always thought it was Walsenburg, but he was born in a small coal mining camp uh, called Primrose. And uh, anyways, that's, that's my home turf. I'm from originally from Pueblo, Colorado, and oh, uh, a lot of the, the, the people that I knew and grew up with came from, they were the grandchildren of folks from those coal camps. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. My mom was born in Pueblo. Oh, actually. really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Funny connection. Um, so anyways, even though I grew up in D.C., I've always had uh, a deep familial connection to the West. I went to college in Colorado, uh, in Colorado Springs, Colorado College. And that's where my wife went to college. There you go. There are a lot of good, <laughs> a lot of good connections. A here. lot of good CC Tigers out there in the world. So, um, but Guardians. Uh, interesting to note that Taos Land Trust was also founded uh, thirty years ago. It was a time in our nation's history when I, I think people were obviously inspired to um, protect land and water and wildlife. Um, I think actually Ed Abbey was really the inspiration um, for people to speak up for public lands as all kinds of threats from industrial scale logging to fossil fuel extraction were mounting. And Guardians got its start uh, in 1989 as a group that was uh, defending our national forest and defending uh, ancient forests from the threat uh, of logging uh, on the Santa Fe National Forest, and so yeah. So, what was that impetus? Why? What? Why was there a need for a new environmental group at that time? A, a, a new environmental group like yours? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I think it was um, like I said. Generally speaking, there were so many people who recognized uh, that the environment, generally speaking, was under threat. And in particular, uh, the Forest Service um, has long had a close relationship with industry, uh, with the timber industry in particular. And um, what had happened um, is the, the Forest Service was allowing the timber industry to log in places where um, <clears throat> basically trying to log the last old growth forests in the Southwest. And there was a particular area called Elk Mountain, just south of the Pecos Wilderness, um, sort of the other side right. of the Pecos Wilderness, closer to Santa Fe, um, where the, the Santa Fe National Forest was proposing to allow a, a timber company to go in and log beautiful, big old ancient spruce and fir up over 10,000 feet. And our founder, uh, a man by the name of Sam Hitt, uh, um, who still lives in Santa Fe, um, said, we got to stop this. And he and uh, two other people, uh, Letty Beelan, who was a longtime attorney 
four Guardians and Steve Sugarman, uh, who still represents Guardians and represents Guardians in a very controversial Endangered Species Act case involving Mexican spotted owls that's led to a, a high-profile injunction on logging on national forests in New Mexico. Um, the three of them helped found Guardians, and so we got our start as a basically all-volunteer citizen-based environmental advocacy group, very, very grassroots that was, that existed to protect our public lands and serve uh, a public purpose of holding federal agencies accountable. I think it's actually a, a critical role that many, many groups play. I mean, our, our government, we like to think, does a good job uh, in trying to protect um, public values. They fall short more often than not, sadly, and that's where citizens come in, whether in the form of nonprofits or just private individuals that hold the government accountable. So Guardians has been doing that work of holding federal agencies accountable for for now in our fourth decade. And I was going to save this question for a little bit later, but yeah. it's, a, it's a good time. Is You know, um, I lived in Europe for for quite a while, and and you, we see how they they differ in how government agencies respond to um, to laws that are passed through through various parliaments or through the through the European Union. Why is it that when we have a law, why is it incumbent on citizens to enforce that law and not on the agencies or the corporations to follow the law? Well, I actually think uh, one of the beautiful aspects of almost not every but many environmental laws and many um, social um, justice or public interest laws uh, is that embedded in those laws is a belief. And I think this is a core belief that our founders had different than um, the European Union countries, but somewhat similar, that the, the, the legislators were skeptical about the role of government to fulfill the full mandate of all these laws. And so um, core to almost every one of these laws is a belief that citizens need to play a role in, in overseeing um, government. That's why you have citizen suit provisions. Right. Um, at the time, they were essential um, components of these laws. And again, it's not just environmental laws. It's all sorts of pu right. public interest laws. Public interest laws. Yeah, that allow for um, uh, what are now more controversial, these citizen suit provisions. I remember when I was young, uh, a young activist being quite, pleasantly surprised at the fact that the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, um, almost all these uh, federal environmental laws include citizen suit provisions. And what's key in those provisions is that uh, they also allow for attorneys to be paid when you prevail, which, again, is, I, I think... The, the, the legislators that passed these laws said you actually have to um, empower citizens by, by recognizing that if citizens and the lawyers who represent them um, hold the government accountable and uphold the principle of the law, that they should be compensated for doing the government's job. So, so in part, this... Um you know, there's often this criticism that we hear it all the time that Americans are uh, lawsuit crazy and we're we're very litigious and we're always in court on things. And what what I'm hearing from you is that, uh, in part, that is part of our democracy. That is yeah. that is one of these core found uh, core pieces of, of of a democratic process. Absolutely. At least as we interpret it. Absolutely. And um, I mean, I, I ironically agree that maybe our society is too litigious. I don't believe, I don't believe that's the case from an environmental perspective. Uh -huh. I really don't. I mean, I feel like there is a belief that the vulnerable need to be protected from the powerful. And one of the ways you do that is through the equitable forum of, of the law. You know, the scales of justice are oftentimes tipped in favor of the powerful, the moneyed, 
um, entrenched political interest. And the law is, in many respects, especially under this administration, like the last surviving forum where you can get a fair shake. And, um, and it is a core democratic principle. Um, so we're talking about these environmental laws. What do you consider to be the foundational landmark environmental laws for our country? You know, um, probably the most foundational one uh, celebrated its 50th anniversary uh, earlier this year, the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA. Um, in addition to NEPA, I would say the other main laws are uh, the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. There are many others. Uh, many of those laws were passed later in the in the 70s. Um, many of these laws were passed actually uh, under uh, Richard Nixon, ironically. Yeah, <laughs> to, I think that's think, something that always stumps us when we think about that. Well, you know, I was actually reading about this as as a result of all the attacks or the most recent high-profile attack on NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, that there's a perception that, um, well, there are a couple perceptions. One is that there's no way it makes sense that Nixon signed any of these laws. Uh, and then there's this other perception, oh, maybe Nixon was better than we thought. Right. But I think the reality is Nixon did a lot of what he did essentially against his core beliefs because the social context demanded it. And uh, it's a good reminder. It's been a good reminder to me that even president's hands can be forced if the Congress and the will of the people demand that kind of accountability. And so Nixon didn't support the Endangered Species Act or the National Environmental Policy Act because he believed deeply in them. He did it because the social context demanded it. So, well, let's talk about just real briefly that that social context. So, you know, you have the the, the Wilderness Act in 1964. Mm -hmm. You have um, Endangered Species Act, NEPA, Clean Air, Clean Water, and so on, coming in the late 60s through the early 70s, like 68 through 73, yep. 74. Yep. Yep. Um, what was going on at that time that we were able to get? Um, all the way from the, the, the Wilderness Act, which is an extremely yeah. progressive, yeah. <laughs> amazing law, um, through these other laws. And, and at the same time, we were getting civil rights, um, uh, um, the, the Voting Rights Act, and all these other um, legislation through. It's it kind of an amazing, like, 10-year period. Yeah. You know, I think it speaks to the importance of um, broader movements that drive systemic change. And we forget that sometimes from our cozy, comfortable niche where we think, oh, no, our job is just to focus on the environment. I think our job as social change activists is to protect the vulnerable from the powerful. And there was a movement in that time, you spoke to it, from the early 60s through the mid-70s when there was a, a wide a array of civil rights, environmental, and public interest laws that came into being because of a belief on the part of the American people, first and foremost, and then our elected officials, that our government had been failing. It was manifest not only in the incredibly uh, abusive and violent behavior of all kinds of elected officials and citizens in the South towards African-Americans, but it was also exhibited in Lake Erie getting on fire because of... Oh, right, right. Yeah, like the Cuyahoga of, River, yeah, River the Cuyahoga fire River. and these type of things. Yeah. yeah, I mean, all of them were symptoms of a government that was failing to do its job to protect um, either citizens that didn't have a voice or rivers, lakes... The, the major pollution problems that were indicative of the fact that industry had overreached and the government had failed to do its job to protect average citizens. So these laws never would have came into being. I'm thinking about looking to the West here, the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, right. which just Another also one. celebrated its uh, 50th anniversary. Um, none of those acts would have came to pass absent the broader social context of uh, which was a belief that government needed to do more to protect vulnerable people, vulnerable citizens, and 
the environment, which which obviously doesn't have uh, a seat at any one table in the way that that people more conventionally can. And in many ways, I'd like to think that the abuses of the current administration are ripening a social context that will allow for broader, deeper social changes to come to pass. It's hard to sort of believe that given where we are right now because it feels like it's a very dark time. But I'd like to think that um, we are perhaps you know, years away, it may be another decade for another time of sweeping social change that can better take care of our citizens, our country, our environment, and the planet in the broader, in the broadest sense, sense possible because of, um, you know, the climate crisis is, is, is upon us and requires, yeah, and, and requires not only leadership from our country, but leadership on a global scale. Well, I, and I really appreciate you saying that. One reason I do this show for the Land Trust and have the guests that I do is because I always need somebody to talk me off the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I think of that time period as, um, as, as a very optimistic time period, right? We're going to the moon. Um, citizens believe that they can stop a, 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 an unjust war in Southeast Asia. Yep. Um, all these environmental laws and social change laws and civil rights laws. And, and, I, and at times... Today, I feel as if that sort of societal optimism has been has been lost, and I may be oversimplifying the complexities of the, of that time. You know, looking back, we often simplify the way things were in history, but I do think there was a general optimism that maybe we're just not we just don't have right now. So I'm I'm happy to hear you, well, you, you express know, some. No, I agree, <laughs> I agree with your your assessment and I don't think it's, you know, a rosy perspective on the past. There were obviously tremendous struggles, tremendous injustices of those times and I think it was a time when there was a greater belief, a greater sense of optimism about the future that things would be better and that we don't have that. And I believe it's one of the critical critical roles that social change activists, that environmental activists can play in these times, notwithstanding all the reasons to despair. And it is that we must shift from an exploitive and extractive economy and mindset to a regenerative and restorative one. And if you can do that and create belief that, oh, we can restore we can regenerate, then I think there are reasons to be optimistic. You, you were talking about one of the Taos Land Trust projects where you're seeing all kinds of reasons for optimism on one 20-acre 20 piece, 20 piece of land. And I think that's a seed of, that sprouts optimism. And we need to apply that kind of example. We need to sort of figure out how to bring that kind of restorative, regenerative experience to systems um, and to drive more systemic change. If we don't do that, I I do fear for our future because there are a lot of reasons, whether it's uh, the epidemics of of abuse around drugs and despair, suicide, climate crisis and economic disparity. There are a lot of reasons to despair. There really are. I, I'm nodding on the radio in case nobody can hear me nod. <laughs> yeah. And so you got to have notwithstanding all those currents and political disenfranchisement. I mean, think about right. Trump and what he is doing now in light of, of post-impeachment. I mean, he is on a rampage of abuse of executive authority, in my opinion. And I see that trend only worsening. And you know, I can say it. Uh, if he gets reelected, it's going to get darker for our country. Um, so, um, but there are reasons for optimism. We've got John Horning, the executive director of Wild Earth Guardians, with us, and we have to take a short break. We will be right back. Hi, this is Christine Ortez, the executive director of the Taos Land Trust. We know you love land. We do too. We want to protect more of it but we need your help. Please donate at tauslandtrust.org slash donate. Thanks. So let's go into the laws. We, we've talked about a little bit of the context of their creation. Um, 
one of the questions I have is how effective are these laws? And let's let's start off with the Endangered Species Act, just as an example. Um, what does the Endangered Species Act do, and how effective has it been? So the Endangered Species Act was passed in 1973, and it basically um, stands for the belief that all species are intrinsically valuable, and humanity should not cause them to go extinct. It's really, when I think about it, it it stirs my soul. Yeah. It really does. That our Congress would pass a law that recognizes we have a moral obligation to prevent the extinction of all species. It is inspiring. Oh, my It goes back God. to that hopefulness. Oh, my God. We do the world. Yeah. It's incredible. And we have a government agency whose job it is to continue to fulfill that promise. And that is? The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And as much as we have our differences with this agency over the way in which they do that job, anytime I sit down with a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service employee, I say thank you. Because I know they have a hard job and I, I, I don't discount our disagreements, but I, I really feel a tremendous sense of gratitude, um, probably even for those officials that are, are, are more than corrupt. You know, because I just feel like government officials don't get enough gratitude. So it's, it's a beautiful law. It's a law that has stood for this promise of protecting wildlife. What is also beautiful about it is that um, it doesn't just speak to species. And one of the criticisms of it is, oh, it's all about species. It very clearly articulates the belief that you cannot protect species without also protecting the ecosystems upon which they depend. And that's language straight from the act. And so um, for 50 years, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has been in the business, and in the case of marine species, it's the National Marine Fisheries Service, of preventing the extinction of, of fish and wildlife and plants all across our country and the world. And they've done, <clears throat> the law has done a remarkable job, you know, more than something like 99% of the species that are on the list have not gone extinct. So it's, it's, um, so even though some of them are still on the list as endangered, they have not gone extinct. Yeah. It, 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 it kind of created a, a, a dam, so to speak, to yeah, stop an emergency that. room, right? An emergency room. And some species need to go in intensive care and some species like gray wolves, like the American alligator, like black footed ferrets, like, um, uh, whooping cranes, bald eagles have been on the list and either come back dramatically or been fully recovered and removed from, from federal protections. Before we came in here this morning, we were talking a little bit about the bald eagles. Um, my wife and I were hi hiking down in the gorge um, this weekend and there were two bald eagles moving up and down the gorge and there's been a lot of them around this this winter and um they are they're they're breathtaking yeah and they weren't there when i was a kid yeah and they probably wouldn't be there today but for the promise uh of the endangered species act you know there was a particular uh pesticide ddt that was causing thinning of of shells um of the eagle uh, shells when they're laying their eggs yeah yeah that the act basically caused a reckoning with that. We ultimately mostly phased that out, at least legally. I still hear of some illegal uses, and that's allowed for the recovery of, of bald eagles such that you have that opportunity, as do many Americans, have experienced a sense of awe and wonder in the presence of wild nature that, that is... I think it's a core part of what it means to be human. To it, it is. It is. Yeah. yeah we, we left the, the gorge uh, Saturday, uh, Sunday night, like just full. Yeah. Emotionally full. Yeah. 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 Lovely. Awesome. So how does the Endangered Species Act work? Well, the, the act applies sort of two instances. All federal agencies, federal actions have to ensure that they do not imperil species, that they contribute even to the recovery of species. So whether it's a, uh, a federal highway administration or more conventionally, 
federal land agencies like the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service. They have a legal and ethical obligation to ensure that their actions don't jeopardize species and ultimately over time contribute to the recovery of species. And so this is federal projects on federal land. Does it apply to to private land and private companies or individuals? It does apply to, to private lands, though in a very different way. It basically, the standard I would, I would say is uh, there's a lower bar, um, but it's a bar that still says you can't harm their habitat and you can't kill individuals. And so, um, and there are ways in which the law and the regulations allow for private individuals um, to sort of be more proactive in dealing with their their obligations. Um, but I think the fact that the law does apply to species everywhere, regardless of whether or not there's a federal land component or a federal agency component, is, is a reaffirmation that it is a law that is fundamentally one of ethical and moral groundings, that it's not just because you're on public land that you have this ethical duty to protect species that are imperiled and that are threatened with extinction. Um, but again, the bar is lower on, on private land. So the way that it basically works is federal agencies have an obligation to what is called consult with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And then the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has that very profound moral and legal duty to protect the species. And so they end up issuing um, what are called biological opinions, essentially their legal and scientific opinion about whether or not and to what degree a federal action uh, might harm a listed species. So that's basically how it works. There's another key provision of the law which actually empowers citizens, once again, to petition the agency to list species. This is something that Guardians has done many, many years now. And very um, effectively. Yeah, yeah. And it's... So give us a, a concrete example of that. Well, sure. Actually, a species that I'm thinking about is called the New Mexico Meadow Jumping Mouse, which exists, I don't think, on the Carson. It might on the Carson, but it exists on the Santa Fe, the Gila, and the Lincoln National Forest that exists along the Rio Grande in central New Mexico. It's a riparian dependent species, you know, needs tall sedges and rushes, and it's deeply imperiled. So we petitioned to list that species first, oh gosh, about 15 years ago, and a series of, of lawsuits because the agency didn't do its job to respond to that petition in a timely way, much less to actually... Uh, invoke the full protections of the law. And so finally, after a, a, a major settlement with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to deal with a backlog of, of failing to list species that merited protection, the agency took action. And I think it was in 20, maybe 2015 or thereabouts, okay. that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service finally listed the New Mexico meadow jumping mouse under the Endangered Species Act. What that means is the other federal agencies, primarily the BLM and the Forest Service, um, have an obligation to protect that species' habitat. The bar is raised, and that has meant things for grazing permittees have had to shift so that they would take better care of the riparian streamside wetland habitats that are frankly, so vital not only for the meadow jumping mouse, but dozens and dozens of other species. Right. And a lot of times, I think that's a, that's a key thing that we forget about the Endangered Species Act is it's not always so much about the individual species because mm -hmm. that individual animal is under threat because of habitat loss. Yeah. So there's, there's all these fall-on effects and fall-on damages that are happening all around that cause this. And so... So the, the, the species itself is often um, uh, well, an indicator, an indicator surrogate, yeah, yeah for, surrogate for a failing system that needs mm -hmm. to be protected and healed. Yeah. You know, it's one of the main criticisms of opponents because they, of the law and individual protections, because they think, 
oh, well, we shouldn't care about this species. And if we can just make it about a species, people will, will care less. And I think it's a, it's a misguided criticism, but it's been somewhat effective. Because if you ask people, do you care about the silvery minnow? They might say, I'm not so sure. If right. you ask people, should we cause its, its extinction? They're more clear. No, we shouldn't. But if you ask them if they care about it, they're not so sure. But if you were to say, should we protect a living Rio Grande? The overwhelming response is, of course. Right. And as you were saying, the silvery minnow is a surrogate. It's a proxy. It's an indicator for the health of the entire Rio Grande, as is the southwestern willow flycatcher and the yellow-billed cuckoo, two species right. that are proximate to where we where we sit today. Right, exactly. And I do want to say that, uh, you know, in uh, prior to doing the restoration work that we've done at Rio Fernando Park, we consulted with fish and wildlife and BLM biologists and, and a number of folks to come in and assess that habitat and, and help us decide how the restoration work would would impact those threatened species. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, our, our long-term goal with the restoration is to enhance habitat yep. for those species. But we didn't want to cause a setback in the meantime. So having that kind of consultation available from Fish and Wildlife was extremely valuable. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that that process entails is is time. And sometimes people will criticize federal agencies and processes like that for taking time. But I think uh, my belief is that that time is essential to get to a better outcome, a better outcome of greater care for sensitive species, sensitive ecosystems. And so, um, yes, the Endangered Species Act is an incredible law. It is one that most Americans support in poll after poll after poll for the last 50 years of, of its, nearly 50 years of its existence. And um, it's a law that guardians will continue to utilize um, to protect species, to protect habitats they depend upon. And, you know, I just wanted to return to this theme of optimism because, you know, the, the law... And its vision, its premise make me optimistic, but also the law in the way that it manifests um, has all kinds of examples that make me optimistic. Think about wolves. Right. You know, One we, of my favorite animals. Yeah. Wolves and beavers. Wolves and beavers. <laughs> We're high-fiving. Jim O'Donnell. <laughs> I'm a beaver in a past life. That's Although right. I was just reading a paper the other day about wolves in Canada preying on, on beavers. Well, so it, 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 I've got to keep it in balance, right? Yep. Yeah. It's a part of, part of the system. But, you know, think about 25 years ago, basically wolves had been completely extirpated from the continental U.S., with a few exceptions in the, the northern Midwest. And because of the leadership and the vision of former Interior Secretary Bruce Babbitt and all kinds of folks within the Park Service and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, we first reintroduced wolves Yellowstone and then other places in the Northern Rockies. And then a few years later, uh, we reintroduced wolves to the Southwest, 1998, 23 years ago this spring. Um, and I was there for that. I remember that. Yeah, now we have wolves, you know, dispersing. Just five weeks ago, we confirmed that Colorado, for the first time in more than 60 or 70 years, has a wolf pack. And these were wolves that dispersed through Wyoming and maybe parts of Utah. Um, And this has all been because of the vision of the Endangered Species Act and the commitment of uh, all sorts of federal agency employees and and nonprofits for sure um, that fulfilled the promise of the Endangered Species Act to, to bring species back from the brink of extinction. And when I think about that, when I think about the fact that we have wolves performing their, their role of being an ecological force on the land, just like beavers, yep. it, I can't help but feel optimistic. Yeah, absolutely. I'm here with John Horning, the Executive Director of Wild Earth Guardians, and we're talking about our nation's landmark environmental laws. We were just talking about the Endangered Species Act, and um, what about the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA? 
I think the National Environmental Policy Act is one of the most critical laws to, a, to provide a forum to ensure that people's voices count, that people's voices are heard. NEPA uh, is a law that, as I said earlier in the show, it's been around 50 years. People call it the Magna Carta of, of environmental laws. It's, you know, if the, if the founding fathers were to have envisioned at the time an environmental law that was sort of a, a bookend to our, our, some of our founding principles that would allow for um, transparency of government process, inclusion that allows for citizens' voices to be heard, they would have said, NEPA's the law we should, we should, we should envision and enact. Um, it basically stands for the belief that government should cause really as little harm as possible when allowing for development to occur. It stands for the belief that citizens should have a right to know what government actions, um, how they impact communities, how they impact clean air and water. Uh, it, it, it stands for the belief that elected of, government officials whose job it is to make these decisions should be informed with the best information. And the way government officials get that best information to hopefully make the best decision that causes the least harm to the environment possible is by engaging in a, in a, in a process whereby agencies um, disclose impacts to, uh, again, communities, air, land, and water. And so NEPA has been vital to all kinds of federal decisions, whether decisions about where to locate a highway. Should a highway run through a community's drinking water source? Should a, should a highway impact wetlands more or less? Um, those kinds of things are things that government agencies take up um, in conducting a National Environmental Policy Act planning process. The most recent example of this uh, involves uh, our efforts to protect Greater Chaco and the landscapes around Greater Chaco in northwest New Mexico, where the Bureau of Land Management is recklessly approving fracking permits to drill essentially on the doorstep of Greater Chaco in ways that are fueling the climate crisis, impacting indigenous communities that live there, and also threatening sacred uh, aspects of the land to both Navajo people and to the Pueblo people of New Mexico. And we, through legal advocacy, along with the Western Environmental Law Center, um, have forced the agency to, to engage in greater disclosure around the impact and potential harm of fracking on water and air. Absent the National Environmental Policy Act, there would be no obligation for the Bureau of Land Management or the Forest Service or all kinds of federal agencies to inform communities, to inform citizens about the harmful effects of federal actions. So it's, uh, it's an incredible uh, statute. We have used it most effectively in the last five years to require um, the BLM to disclose impacts around fracking on our climate and clean air. And when President Trump announced his plan to roll back NEPA and not re require agencies to look at cumulative effects, to consider climate uh, in, in all of their actions, when he did that, I think he had in particular, I, I see this rollback as being a policy manifestation of climate denial. It's like they don't, mm -hmm. it would allow them to continue, them meaning the federal agencies and the Trump administration to, to not have to disclose these effects, to not slow down and, and consider harm to communities. And um, it's a very, very sinister approach. Uh, I, I believe it's a part of consolidating power and building um, what Trump wants, which is sort of a more autocratic, uh, t 
tyrannous Top form, down. yeah, form of government that that deprives citizens of the ability to participate in 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 government decisions. And um, I suspect that before the election comes, there will be a final rule that the Trump administration will unveil that will completely eviscerate the National Environmental Policy Act. And we, along with dozens of other groups, will be filing a lawsuit to challenge that decision. What, what, do you, what, what will that be? How can't, because um, all of these laws that we're talking about were passed by Congress. Mm-hmm. So Congress makes the laws, the executive does enforce them, we understand that. But yep. how can um, the executive branch, how can this administration eviscerate a law like NEPA that came from Congress? How does that work? Well, every law has um, has a regulatory framework for implementing the law. The way that federal agencies abide by federal laws is not to actually sort of read the law itself, but rather to follow the regulations that implement the law. So the practical way they go about doing this, the Trump administration or any presidential administration is to engage in a rulemaking process that says, as they would say, we want to engage in some housekeeping, um, completely false, but sort of housekeeping, uh, streamlining, streamlining. Exactly. That's, that's the, the word of the day to, um, clean up the federal regulations that implement the law. Um, they're doing this to, I would argue essentially every environmental law. They've done it to uh, the Clean Water Act just a week or two ago, the the Waters of the United States rule. We just filed a notice to challenge that. And and to we we've we've talked about that several times on the yeah, show. But yeah. just what is that? Because again, Clean Water Act, one of these landmark laws. What did they do? Because it hits New Mexico hard. Well, I mean, they basically, under the Clean, the Clean Water Act rule rollback, uh, essentially through regulation, said that certain waters aren't waters anymore. They're not, by virtue of being ephemeral waters, they're no longer waters. So, um, I mean, there are other aspects of the rule, too, but I see that as the most sinister thing that they've done that has a more profound as- uh, effect, not only on uh, New Mexico, but arid states all across the right. West. So so um, waterways, uh, the Rio Fernando might be considered one, yeah. waterways that don't have water in them all year round suddenly now lose protection under this change. Yeah, they, w- they wouldn't even be... be um, under the provisions of the Clean Water Act, they wouldn't right. you, they wouldn't apply anymore. So if you wanted to dump pollution into a river like that, you wouldn't even have to abide by any any of the provisions of the Clean Water Act. Right. So the the method, getting back to NEPA, right. that the Trump administration is a, is deploying is a perfectly legitimate one. Um, the the strategy and the the overall approach is is a completely illegitimate one because they're overreaching and you know for many of the environmental lawyers that are uh, out there in the world the Trump administration has been good for business right um not only because they have sought to roll back so many laws but they've done so in a way that pre- prevent uh, excuse me presents great opportunities for legal challenges. Right. And, you know, it's been the silver lining of Trump's arrogance and the overreach of all of his cabinet secretaries is that they've lost a bunch. My fear thinking about November is if they have four more years, they're going to be able to clean up a lot of uh, the messes that they've made by redoing rules and learning from the failures. And we've seen it just actually yesterday or the day before with a new proposed rule to roll back protections for sage grouse. They had done something previously under Zinke. Very the, sloppy. Yeah, very sloppy. Uh, got overturned by a lawsuit that Guardians and a few other groups brought. Now they just announced a new rule that will be a little tighter and that maybe, well, I shouldn't say maybe, will definitely be 
harder to challenge legally. And so I've always said we can withstand it'll be damaging four years of Trump. I don't know. Eight how years. We, is, eight years is right. Yeah. And so whether it's NEPA, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, all these laws are under attack through regulatory um, changes that the Trump administration uh, has been uh, conducting. Uh, we can hold the line for a certain amount of time. It's going to be harder to do so if we have to face eight years of it. Sticking with NEPA. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, I'm unfortunately old enough to remember, and I was a child, I'm not that old, but I was a child, but I, I, I do remember dirty air, dirty water. I remember driving along the highways um, and, and the, 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 the right-of-ways along the highways were covered in litter and dirt. Mm -hmm. I remember cars in our river, junk cars and, and refrigerators and things like that. Oh. And I remember a time when there were no bald eagles or, or wolves around. Mm -hmm. um, all of these the cleanups and species return are the result of these, these laws. And, mm -hmm. and I think that these laws can seem a little abstract to people at times. They don't really understand how it impacts their lives. So sticking with NEPA um, and going beyond Chaco to maybe some other examples, how might some of our listeners' lives have been positively impacted by NEPA? Well, I'll give you a personal one. I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., came west to go to college uh, at Colorado College in the Springs and um, played college football at the Division Three level. One of the teams we played against my senior year was Pomona College in L.A. And I played a football game. We lost. Great game. Had a good game. The next day, I was spitting up blood from uh, – it was a day in which – the air quality was so bad that I was just breathing in all sorts of nasty particulates from pollution in the Los Angeles basin. And as a result of both the Clean Air Act and the National Environmental Policy Act, which require these federal agencies to engage in um, transparency and figure out which options might reduce harm on the environment. The Los Angeles area has, has, to a large extent, cleaned up that problem of air pollution that, that caused me to suffer the day after that football game. I think more locally, here's what I would say. New Mexicans have a deep and profound connection to our national forests and public lands. NEPA allows for citizens to participate in the decisions that agencies make. So whether it's uh, about where to locate recreational trails or whether or not to protect ancient forest or to provide corridors for wildlife like pronghorn and elk, uh, the only reason that the Forest Service has engaged in all kinds of public meetings throughout northern New Mexico um, thinking of the Carson, the Santa Fe, and the Rio Grande, is because of the requirements of the National Environmental Policy Act to include opportunities for citizens to influence what that land use plan will ultimately look like. And so I'd like to think that the lives of, of many New Mexicans would be drastically different absent NEPA because it gives us the opportunity to influence how and whether or not agencies protect public values like all the things that I spoke to, wildlife, migration corridors, clean water, ancient forests, recreational areas. Um, and I think also, um, I, I think of in terms of, of human health and well-being, um, NEPA, clean air, clean water has been used by um, um, communities of color and and, and, and um communities that have uh, less economic opportunity or less privileged to fight off um, uh, industry or projects that may um, dirty their water, oh, dirty sure. their drinking water, yeah. um, uh, dirty their air. And, you know, sometimes this law is, is not always applied equally across the board. You, sure. you, there, there's resource and privilege issues, but sure. by and large, it has helped communities throughout the country protect their health. 
Absolutely. And I think about this as it applies to the Four Corners region of New Mexico, which has been uh, a fossil fuel colony for our nation's dependence on those fossil fuels. And um, the communities of the Navajo communities there, the communities of Farmington and Aztec, the the government, whether it's been the EPA or the BLM or the Office of, of Surface Mining, um, which regulates coal, all those agencies have had to undergo National Environmental Policy Act planning processes that disclose how much pollution is occurring because of coal-fired power plants or because of oil refineries or because of fracking. And... Um, yeah, those communities um, and the downwind communities. Gosh, let's look at at Lanel and Lanel's legacy um, in in northern New Mexico. So much of the pollution that that comes from Lanel's historic uh, relationship to to nuclear energy and nu- nuclear fusion none of that would have been disclosed to the communities of northern New Mexico absent the requirements of the National Environmental Policy Act. Could you imagine living next to a Superfund site, living next to an, a nuclear waste repository without... I'm thinking about Santa Fe and the Waste Isolation Project Plant and the shipping of waste from, from Los Alamos to WIP in South southwest southeastern new mexico i wouldn't even know that they would be shipping right. containers of nuclear low-level nuclear waste through santa fe but for the requirements of nepa right and so uh yeah it's it's i mean the one thing that i would say about nepa is it actually doesn't require the decision maker to make the best choice for the environment nepa's not an outcome-driven statute like the Endangered Species Act or the Clean Water Act or the Clean Air Act, it merely requires government agencies to to allow for participation and to be transparent. Right. And in that sense, I think it's core to democracy. It is, yeah, absolutely. We've been talking with John Horning, the executive director of Wild Earth Guardians. We could go on for another hour, but John, thank you for joining us. You're welcome, and thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Christy Nortez, Executive Director of the Taos Land Trust. For 30 years, we've been keeping working lands in working hands. To do that, we need your help. We need your cash. Please donate at tauslandtrust.org slash donate. Thank you. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM in Taos, New Mexico, edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.tauslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.